0: You know, it's believing after the fact, that a past event was predictable or obvious. And the reality is, there's no way you could have reasonably predicted that outcome. And we see that all the time with punditry in the financial media making these claims about stocks and companies and where they're going and what the price should be and all this other stuff and then you look back and go oh well no that didn't happen welcome to her wealth matters if you want to take control of your financial life then listen up our goal is to empower women and their families to conquer any financial challenges on the road to and through retirement it's time for Her Wealth Matters with financial planner, Janine Theus. I actually had one client say, she said, I would never have thought of these things. I go, well, that's the value of an advisor. And here's your host, Walter
1: Storholt. We're going to be talking about investing Biases, right? Investing biases. And there are several to work through. So we're going to dedicate today's show to walking through some of the different biases that are out there. And this actually is from the, uh, the European Financial Review. Sounds very official, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, they recently released a study on the ways that investor biases impact their financial behavior and decisions and i'm curious how you've seen some of these biases manifest themselves in folks and what we can do about it as savers and investors trying to live a good financial life and get to retirement and through retirement with uh no problems and to reach our goals and dreams that we have so i'll walk you through these different biases and uh, you tell us where you've seen these things before janine uh what about confirmation bias that's what I feel like I've heard a hundred times, but I actually probably couldn't define it for you.
0: Well, confirmation bias is is actually something we see a lot. You're paying more attention to information that supports your opinion and ignoring information that doesn't. So whether it's politics, investing, you know, climate change, whatever it is, you're you're so focused on what you think is the truth, that you're not allowing yourself to be objective. And that can work for many things, but it's it's literally, these biases are actually filters. And everybody has these filters, and so the question is, are you able to kind of stop the filter, open the filter, so that you can actually receive other information that might mm, challenge your bias? <laughs> because is it really the truth and that's really the challenge when clients come in and talk with us because they're so sure that this is things are this way or a certain way because you know my father did it this way or my grandfather did it this way and this is how they invested and and you know this is how they thought of their mortgages and so what we do is walk people through the process of mathematical reality and how things have changed in the last 20 30 years so that they can check the confirmation bias and see, okay, now let's do a reevaluation. Because maybe you need to look at new information so that you can make proper decisions.
1: What about loss aversion bias? That's another interesting one, Janine. Yeah,
0: this is a really big one. And we have several, a couple of examples at least. So that's being overly sensitive to risk of loss because all of the studies show that we feel loss two and a half times more than we actually feel a gain. So you're reluctant to take action because you're having this fear of bad outcomes. The perfect example is what go- happened in 2008 where the we had the market crisis, if you will. There was a ripple effect all throughout the economy that caused a lot of people to be very fearful for their circumstances because they lost their jobs. I mean, the, the ripple effect was losing jobs, losing houses, losing income etc. And so when the market crashed in 2008, that effect was so powerful that people became fearful, took their money out of the market and didn't put it back in. And so when you look at history, the market turned in March of 2009. And from 2009 to the end of 2013 was, and this is the Dow we're talking about, was up over 250%. It was significantly beyond where it took the nosedive at the end of 2007. But because people were so afraid of that loss or a continued loss, they did not get back into the market and they lost that ability to gain it all back plus. So this is a very powerful emotion that it um, paralyzes people. And so when if folks are experiencing that or if they have experienced that, they, they would they need to come in and have a conversation about what the how the market actually works, what actually happens, what's happened in the past. and you can see the trends and the movements. And so once you understand the research behind the market, you're less likely to be as afraid or fearful.
1: We've talked before on the show about how we can't let things like fear. And on the other end of the spectrum, like greed, you know, take over and dominate our decision makings. So this is one of the reasons why, because it may lead to loss aversion bias, which can throw your financial plan out of whack. That's the big problem here. Can you reiterate that stat that you mentioned, Janine, The uh, how people feel? They feel losses, was it twice as hard as they do? Yeah, at
0: two, two two and a half times. So I don't know if we're getting kind okay. you know, of mathematically correct. It's two and a half times the power that they or this this terrible emotion that they feel versus when they gain something. So you have a market gain and woohoo, and everybody's everybody's genius <laughs> when the market's going up. Woo. Right. But the problem is many of those people still have this loss aversion. And gotcha. so until you s- understand what is normal, real based on your allocation, based on your diversification, all these things, you really will never rid yourself of that feeling. I I don't think it ever goes away for most people because they are, especially if they're in retirement. If you're in retirement, you're much more sensitive to this bias because you don't have the time to recover. So one of the things we do when folks come in is take a look at how you're allocated, if you're allocated properly, and we use the uh, image of a roller coaster. What roller coaster can you stand to be on while you're in retirement? And that will check the loss aversion bias.
1: Here's another one, Janine. All right. Don't let these names, by the way, get you down. I know there might be a lot to chew on, but we're going to explain them. Disposition effect bias. Disposition (laughs) effect. effect bias. Big word. What's the layman's term for that? (laughs) Uh,
0: It's making an assumption or labeling certain investments as winners or losers. And you're refusing to change your mind because you're absolutely certain that this is a winning stock or a losing stock. Generally, that's what they are because people don't come in here and say, This is a winning bond. I have to have this one. That's not what they come in to say. But the problem here, the bias is, you know, this could be somebody holding on to investments that are well past usefulness. Well, all stocks and bonds are useful, it's how we are employing the tools. And it's very important for people to understand that you can get trapped in this thinking. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had a client who bought Under Armour. Of course, when I found this out, I said, well, you're cheating on me here, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love Under Armour. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I
0: I know. Well, I do too. And I said, you can never have too much Under Armour (laughs) to wear. (laughs) But he bought the stock at about $22 a share. And when it went to 93, I called him and said, are you going to sell? And he said, no, no, no. It's a great company. It's a great stock. I just know it. And because it's a local boy, if you will, Kevin Plank. And um. Then it went to $14 a share. And he called me incredibly stressed out. And I said, okay, so I'm not going to tell you I told you so, but I told you so. So what do you want to do now? And that's the problem with this disposition effect. It will fool you into thinking that you actually understand the company. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in the boardroom making decisions, or you're not an analyst, you know, and you're looking at the books and the income statements, etc., you probably shouldn't own individual stocks because the reality is you're not making the decisions. You really don't know what's happening inside the company. So if you're in retirement, that's a huge problem because if you have a pretty good size of your portfolio in one stock, luckily he did not, but if you have a lot of your retirement portfolio in one or two or five stocks, that's a, pretty, that's a big danger for you because you will be a victim of this in that you have no control over what the market does, you have no control over what the stock does.
1: Janine, another bias here is hindsight bias. I think we all could probably guess what that one means, with hindsight being twenty twenty and all.
0: And that's what I, I was just going to say that. Everybody knows hindsight twenty twenty. You can come up with multiple examples in your own lives about what that would be. And I'll give you a, a great example. If you ever get into a partnership with a family member, yeah. Hindsight bias says you probably should not have done that. I knew that was not <laughs> going to work out. uh,
1: Sounds like a personal story. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, that's a personal
0: story. Not that the people are bad, but you know, sometimes they're just not on the same page. And so, you know, it's believing after the fact that a past event was predictable or obvious. And the reality is, there's no way you could have reasonably predicted that outcome. And we see that all the time with punditry in the financial media, making these claims about stocks and companies and where they're going and what the price should be and all this other stuff. And then you look back and go, oh, well, no, that didn't happen. That one will bite you, (laughs) that's what I could say. You know, and it's kind of like familiarity bias, which is, I know I'm very familiar with, which most people are, the S&P five, which is actually one asset class that's a group of stocks that fall into the large U.S. companies, and you're all familiar with them. It's it's Facebook, it's Amazon, it's uh, Netflix, Google. Those are the four biggest.
1: The, in, the fang stocks. The FANG, fang stocks,
0: they call yeah. yeah. So, um, and people are maybe not familiar with that term, but they kind of drive the return in the whole S and P 500 index. But everybody's familiar with that index because it's you know it's one of the top indices on MarketWatch. It's always reported in the news. And the problem is, what really hurt people in 2008 is that they were all on one side of the market, S&P5 and Dow. And yes, the whole market tanked, except for a couple of different fixed core asset classes. But in general, that class of stocks was one of the worst hit. And so when you're, you're looking at your portfolio and you think you're diversified because you have three or four or five mutual funds, I would be willing to bet you have three or four or five mutual funds of the same thing. And that's what happened is people were overweighted to one side of the market. So familiarity bias means you are very familiar or you have a preference for well-known or familiar investments, the S&P 5, and you can't get out of the comfort zone because you don't understand the other parts of the market. And that was extremely detrimental to people in 2008.
1: All right. What about self-attribution bias? Another one that I won't even try to define on my own.
0: Well, (laughs) yeah, that's a pretty (laughs) strange one, actually. I've never heard it Refer to that, but once you you kind of look at the definition, you go, okay, I know exactly what this is. You know, this is you saying my 401k is great, isn't it? I'm a genius. (laughs) And and then, you know, the market tanks and now your 401k is not doing well. And then you've got, you're going to blame somebody else. You know, what can you do about it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, so it's it was your uh, it's like someone who takes credit for all of the successes but none of the blame for the failures. Basically. That's right.
0: And and the reality is, I mean, I have people. I actually had somebody say this. I did a client event a couple weeks ago on the new Secure Act, and I had someone actually say that. You know, he's doing really well with our investments. I said that's because the market's been up. <laughs> 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 so, you know, but that leads us right into trend chasing. You know, it's also called track record investing. And I don't care who you are, you do this in life, because we're hardwired to do this. It's literally called track record investing. If I was going to hire somebody, I want to know what their history is. I want to know the track record of that person. But it doesn't work in investing. And we do it all the time. Because what do you do when you go to your 401k statement, you look at and you're going to pick a fund that's available. You're going to look at the one year, three year, five year, 10 year, and you're going to go, oh, this is a great, great fund. When in fact, most mutual funds will turn over the entire portfolio, eh, 78%, you're going to have a completely different fund the next year than the previous year. And if you had a fabulous five-star fund this year, it's a very, very low percentage chance it's going to be a five-star fund next year. So track record investing will bite you if you're not careful, because there's, yeah, I think no
1: that makes sense. I mean, the very first time I went to go pick an investment, first job, you know, four hundred one k, all that jazz, and you start picking things. I just looked at some mutual funds and said, "Yeah, this one seems to have done it. It hasn't crashed in the past five or ten years. I'll just pick that one." Yeah, and
0: <laughs> and and so the, and everybody's done that. Everyone, including advisors, because there was an entire company whose um, sales reps we're using the five star four star morning star rating tactic to sell mutual funds and that's what they were using and uh, you know talk about scams on the radio but it's basically a scam because when you look at the statistics 80% of those funds did not repeat the following year so the the real impetus is for you to understand how the market actually works and to be properly diversified and if you've done that in your 401k or you've done that in your own portfolios you need to come in and take a look at or sit down and have a conversation about how the market actually works and what the research says. Where do returns actually come from and how much risk am I taking on or do I want to take on, especially if I'm nearing or in retirement?
1: You've been listening to the Her Wealth Matters podcast. If you have any questions at all about retirement or financial planning, give Janine a call at 833-437-7526 or go online to HerWealthMatters.com. For Janine Theus, I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time on the Her Wealth Matters podcast. The Her Wealth Matters podcast is brought to you by Theus Wealth Advisors, based in Columbia, Maryland, serving Howard County and beyond. The show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app and never miss an episode. Just search for Her Wealth Matters to find us. You can also visit herwealthmatters.com for subscribe links to contact Janine Theus and to learn more information about how to best prepare for your financial future. It's HerWealthMatters.com. Thanks for listening to today's show.
0: Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.